0: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is Objects and Values of Labor in Socialist Hungary. This is the second in Reese's fall series, Socialism, Past, Present, and Future, featuring a live interview I recorded with Martha Lampland. Income inequality and what to do about it is a hot-button political issue throughout the world. Much of this disparity is the result of how the value of labor is calculated. How much is a worker's labor worth? How is it measured? Namely, how is it commodified? I turned to Martha Lamplin to discuss these questions and how they were answered in an unlikely place, Socialist Hungry, to shed some light on how economists in a society without labor markets nonetheless determine the value of labor and what this says about socialism and capitalism. Martha Lamplin is a professor of sociology and science studies at the University of California, San Diego. She's the author of two books, The Object of Labor, Commodification in Socialist Hungry, and The Value of Labor, The Science of Commodification in Hungary, 1920-1956, to 1956, both published by the University of Chicago Press. Here's Martha Lampland. I want to start by just having you talk about yourself. In particular, I was looking at your most recent book and you identify yourself as a standing member of the society of people who study boring things. And I found this really kind of a curious thing to say. Um, I was wondering, what are you trying to say about yourself in declaring yourself a member of this society? Uh, and it, you know, what does it say about the work that you do?
1: Uh, yes, I'm very proud to be a member of that. I was inducted by Lee Starr and Jeff Bowker into this group. And a number of other illustrative um, people are in it. Um, They inducted me when they found out I was writing about work units. I'd just come back from the field in Hungary and I was talking about work units, and everybody there had been making fun of me, so I'd gotten used to kind of. And they said, What? Oh my God, that's great. So um, I guess the the simplest way of saying that is that the kind of questions that I. I like to ask, or the way in which I like to answer why questions um, is by how. So uh, you know, a lot of my work has been on what some people might just call the this long term. Well, it's about the commodification of labor, the way in which labor becomes um, an object. Right, it becomes uh, people start to think about labor as being um, a monetary object, and so on. So you know, the basic history of commodification of labor and. I will always say that I knew that rationalization had happened in factories and other kinds of conditions, but I, I, I needed to know how, because unless I knew the specifics of how it happened, um, I wouldn't be convinced that, that what we've been told was true about the way in which standardization occurs and all these formalisms work, were true. So um, in my first book, you know, I, you know, I'm an anthropologist by training, so my first work, I was actually in the field. And so there hanging out with people all the time meant that I I had a fairly clear sense over time of how they were living their lives and what was going on. And then you just, you know, connect the dots, you know, and I did archival work and and all kinds of other things. So, um, but the more recent book I wrote precisely because so much of what I wanted to know when I was in the field in the 1980s about how these wage forms had been designed um, was invisible to me because, of course, I didn't have access to party documents, but after 89, all of a sudden it meant that I could have, um, I could actually kind of pursue that question much more minutely. I could see how it is that the state designed a very specific kind of wage system and also follow the way in which it would be implemented. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about boring things, because a lot of people don't have the patience to go through all the, you know, the very basic minutiae. And in some respects, they also don't think of these basic things as being that significant. So um, I taught a course once on um, standardization, and a lot of it is about infrastructure. And all, most of what you think of as basic forms of infrastructure are completely invisible. You know, you don't think about the electricity grid. You don't think about how it t- what it takes to get the electricity into that little plug so that you could... So... Um, Making those kinds of things visible, c- coming to understand the historical processes whereby those things come into being, the constraints, the social problems that they you know raise and so on that's that's a how question. Mm-hmm. and it's um, with my mo- most recent book too the you know the people assume that markets are arise out of you know like a on a half shelf or a shell or something that they just arise out of the blue and they, there's a huge amount of work that is required to put it in. There. So they talk about building a, an infrastructure for the assessment of labor value. So it's those kinds of things that for a lot of people seem, I mean, one of the people who was um, in this group early on, Stefan Timmermans, was studying how they measured urine in hospitals, for example. These things that are very, they seem obscure. But in fact, it tells you a great deal about how you know certain kinds of measurements, the way in which, let's say, the the you know fluids in the body are understood, and how so on. So that essentially is the is the nub.
0: Does this come from a, um, a reading reading Marx on commodification? Because this is how he he goes through this granular process of trying to uncover how you know an object and all the parts that come together to make a commodity, right? And then, then of course, the commodity fetishism that arises from that, it sounds like you're trying to, you're doing a similar type process. You're you, Just what you said about Marcus, you're trying to, you know, break apart the fetishism that we have that they somehow, you know, come from the sky. Is, is, is that an influence as well?
1: Well, it would be in a kind of more general sense um, in that um, I always try to, explain that my general interest is in how is it the one thing becomes another mm-hmm. so you have to know the kind of the bits and pieces along the way um, and Marx was a good I suppose um, example of this I mean I've often thought about um, I mean there's a lot of parts to this story but that um, I've been thinking a lot about Marx's understanding of labor which um Rick Baranaki has written this brilliant book on the fabrication of labor in which he kind of contrasts the way in which labor was understood in Germany and England. I can go into the specifics, but the point is that it becomes very clear that Marx had a very different understanding of what labor power was um, that was not existed in England. And he was able to use that conceptual framework to understand English capitalism very effectively. So he had this additional kind of conceptual uh, repertoire Um, that was the missing and so he could get into the very specifics and he also talks at one point about how what you have to do is is to think about everything as a moment right a lot of that early statistics von Stein and other people were talking about in the mid 19th century was that what it means to capture movement and activity right so if I think I'm interested in how one thing becomes another it's all about process so you have to see the things going on over time and I um, you know, since I'm in exile in a sociology department, I always talk about how um, if you haven't done field work, if you haven't um, lived with people and spent a lot of time with people and know that a lot of stuff is just really, you know, boring, you know, that you kind of stand on the street corner and you wait for buses or, you know, you pick apples in the orchard or something, and um, that it's that things happen over time and they develop in a very complex way and so i've often thought that maybe less so maybe i don't know historians might be better at this but that a lot of people understand history but they don't understand process so they they can talk about little events that happen one after another but to talk about how something transforms into another thing is a whole different
0: uh now now that that's one of the aspects of your work is that you're looking at continuities in terms of within social, very large social economic change, and and of course the scientific efforts to to develop that change and understand it and categorize it. Um, And you note, and I forget which book it was, but you note that your interest in the transition to Stalinism in Hungary was somewhat informed by witnessing Socialist Hungary's transition to capitalism in the 1990s. And I was really struck by You know both of these because we have a lot of you know the transition to Stalinism the transition to capitalism are seen as completely uh, we're not we don't put them in the same kind of conceptual universe but they do share a kind of transition so how did the the transition of capitalism inspire you to think about the transition to Stalinism in Hungary
1: what I guess I would say is the um the similarity, at least in a lot of the social science literature, the idea was there was a rapid transition in '48 and there's a rapid transition in '89, which is a bunch of bullshit. I mean, it was just ridiculous. I mean, if you knew anything about what was going on, it didn't make any sense, right? So I was offended by that because it had it didn't wasn't grounded in any social theory understanding of how people live their lives. It it couldn't possibly be that quick, um, in, certainly in '89. And also, of course, a lot of what I'd written in my first book was that labor had been commodified. But it didn't argue that it was a capitalist economy. So the idea for a lot of people was that, oh yeah, you have all this second economy going on, and all of a sudden everyone's going to be a capitalist, which is absurd, because no one was taking any risk. It wasn't a risk environment. That's not a capitalist environment. Um, the idea of nobody had any kind of extra capital. Everybody had been you know buying their kids cars and building houses. I'm talking about the countryside because they had no way of investing it. So they didn't have all this extra money to start to invest in businesses and so on. So there are all kinds of things. And the idea that from one day to the next, people who had been in managing farms would all of a sudden give up um, their control of those assets and or give up on all the networks that they had and the way in which they'd run those things from one day to the next was, didn't make any sense. It was, they would be building on those kinds of things. So, um, so I was very frustrated with the early... I remember my friend Yoshka. There were two party secretaries in the village, one a good one and one an evil one. And Yoshka, my buddy, I mean there could have been more party secretaries who evil, but this guy was a jerk. Anyway, so my buddy Yoshka was a nice guy and um, so he said to me in 90 or 91, he said, "Marto, he says, why aren't you studying what's going on now?" You know, he was fascinated by all the, you know, decollectivization. I said, "Yoshka, I know what capitalism looks like." A couple of people get rich and everybody else is poor. So what's what, that's? there's no question, there's nothing. Whereas for socialism for me it was what was going on, how were they making, how were they t- trying to change things? And and so actually way back when one of my students said, you're not interested in how one thing becomes another. You're interested in how people try to make one thing become another. So the socialist project, or you could also make this argument on capitalism, the capitalist ob- 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 project is trying to you know transform people's behavior in a ways that they'll, act differently. So that whole way of what it takes to alter people's behaviors meant that I wasn't expecting rapid changes in 89. Um, and also because already when I had been in the field in um, the early 1980s, I was fascinated. I, we can talk about the work unit more specifically, but I was I was really drawn to this particular work, this very strange thing. Um, and I got appendicitis and um, Luckily, I was up in the city because I'd gone to hear a talk by, was it Peter Brooks, somebody on Early Modern Witches? I don't know, I thought that was gonna be a great, great talk, so we went up to Budapest to hear the talk, and luckily, that's when I got up in a So I was in the city, um, couldn't go back to the village because I couldn't lift, wa- you know, I didn't have water in my house, so I had to- um, So I was hanging out in the parliamentary library, and I ran across this journal called um, Agricultural Work Science, and I go, who in the world? These idiots, work science? How can you make a science out of work? That just doesn't make any sense, right? Forty four, 43, 44 was when it was published. And I'm thinking, these guys are sitting trying to figure out the value of labor. They're trying to figure out how much oxygen it takes to cut wheat with a scythe. Now, you know, it's like these very modernist things with this very medieval technique. Um, and I thought, oh my God, maybe these are the people who are related to what the work unit. So I returned to my friend, Juhasz Paul Pauli, who's this brilliant agrarian. I said, well, Pauli, is it possible that in fact the wage unit in socialist cooperative farms had a connection to this earlier work, which is primarily influenced by German Betriebswirtschaft? And he goes, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So already, before I left the field, I already had assumed that there were these continuities, um, that this this system that had been developed, 49, 50, 51, the new work system, the new wage system for cooperative farming had um, tendrils, if you, you know, could call it, or connections to pre-war activity. So um, that already told me. And then once you start doing any study of the, of the transition, I mean, these are the these were all planned economies in the thirties, right? Especially during the war period, these were very planned economies. So the radical change was not that it was a planned economy. It was radicalness over time because it was so comprehensive, right? But it wasn't radical that you know a lot of national industries were being run by the state because the state had owned lots of industries already. Um, so a lot of that change wasn't big. Um, a lot of if you paid attention, which I did, of course, not. When I first got to the field, several people, you know, everyone said, both Communist Party historians, you know, the old gang, and then kind of dissident historians had said, you've got to read the notes of the Central Committee. And I said, well, why would I read that? They're not the ones who are writing the, you know, the, tech. they're not writing the policies. They're just, you know, kind of. So if you start to go down and see who's writing the stuff and who's filling those positions, you start to see there's not a lot of change. In you know the personnel, I mean, there's some people who are taken out for, um, you know, for show. But there's a lot of continuity in the people who are working in the bureaucracy. Um, there's a lot of continuity in the way in which the bureaucracy is structured. It becomes much more modern in the socialist period. So if you start to look at what actually was happening, it wasn't a radical shift. It couldn't have been a radical shift one because you can't change things that quickly, and because the Communist Party did not. Um, you know, a a large number of the people who were writing, um, and certainly the wage policy, had all been trained in German economics, capitalist economics they weren't trained in. I mean, uh, Frisch Istan, who was the kind of major party um, economist who ran the Institute on Economic Research, said the first person who was truly qualified to do Marxist-Leninist economics graduated from the university in 55. Which means of course up until then everybody else had been trained in a very different um, genre. People yeah. tried, but
0: let me ask you about your this focus on labor, because your your both both your books are dealing with labor from you know, in a connected way but from different angles. So the, your first book is the object of labor. So how does labor become a commodity itself, a thing? And then the value of labor is then how does the value of that thing get constructed? Um Talk about about this relationship and how it's objectified and then valued in in socialist Hungary.
1: Yeah, I um, I mean, initially when I wanted to do field work, you know, I went to Hungary as an undergraduate and I lived there for about two years for a variety of reasons, and so I already had my tribe when I came back to um, the states before I graduated from um, my undergraduate degree. And at that point, I was very interested in things like the worker peasant, you know, all these kind of coma. um. And what I was really actually interested in was in political symbols. Um, and so, you know, like May Day parades and, you know, political ideology and so on. Um, but I went back in 77 to kind of, tells you whole hold I went back in 77 to see, you know, think about the possible ways in which I could do field work. And obviously you would work with industrial workers as socialism is the epitome of the worker, but as a... A foreigner, and certainly as an American, I would never have been allowed to be in working a, in a factory of any kind. Even in the nineteen eighties, you know, they wouldn't let you know. Even though half of the half of the pa- patents or licenses were from Austria, so you know, what am I supposed to steal? You know, it's like, um, so I had to give up the fact that you know any hope of doing looking at industrial labor, and fell back onto what I think of as the classic. You know, I'll work in a little village, and you know, it's somewhat bounded unit. You know. Um, and I'm very glad I did, because of course Hungary was essentially an agrarian economy up until primarily until 50 or 55, you might say. So um, at that point, what that meant is that I was interested in um, you know, the glorification of, of, of work, right? That's what the socialist project was about. So I was drawn to labor. I might be also f- drawn to it because I'm I a Calvinist, you know, I was a Presbyterian, so who knows? Maybe I work really hard or something. Um, and I feel like I've got you know enough OCD to study scientific management. So, um, so I got, you know, so I was really focused on what how people were working and, and the kinds of questions I wanted to ask. How do people change over time? Is what do you do when the state um, takes everything away for, takes all your property away and forces you to work in different conditions? Right. So that was what um, made me focus on labor in that respect. And the other thing that I found really frustrating, too, was that um, people would always define peasants in terms of how much property they have. But two-thirds of all Hungarian um, agricultural workers were landless. They didn't have any land whatsoever. You know, there was an expression that said, "You know, the, the 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 country of three million beggars." So that meant that there were most of them worked in Morial estates, or as day laborers or migrant laborers. So very few people had land, and most of the land was held in these large estates. Um, so because of most ethnographers in Hungary didn't do what we think of as sustained kind of fieldwork in an anthropological mode, they didn't live in places for long periods of time. They just categorized workers or peasants according to land or not land, but if you lived in a village as I did, which was um had been relatively poor and very much involved in manorial production, we can talk about why that village later. but you had these very subtle differences between people who people who had land and they could you know feed their family, and then people who had land but they couldn't quite feed their family, and then people who didn't really have enough land but they, had to, but they could work in day labor. And then you had the people who lived out in the manorial estate, these huge uh, latifundia or plantations, who had nothing and were treated as animals for that reason. Um, so, so it meant that labor was this very complex system that no one was paying attention to.
0: Talk about collectivization and how it, it, it came into being in Hungary and the way it worked.
1: People often think of the 1950s as the most brutal period of collectivization, but that wasn't the case. 80 percent of people didn't ever join cooperative farms. The people who did join cooperative farms early on were, unsurprisingly, people who had been landless and had gotten a little bit of land in the uh, labor in the land reform. Didn't have any tools. They didn't have any animals. They might have. They had to be given hoes by the state. Um, and who themselves had worked in large-scale production. They had worked in Monroe Estates, so they were used to working in large groups. Um, they didn't have this fondness for, you know, family, f- thing, right? So you have some cooperatives early on, a lot of people. I mean, and there's this very brutal um, attack on the part of the state um, against, um, you know, all these um, forced deliveries that people were, you know, that were increasingly... You know, at at such high levels that people would essentially lose everything that they had produced. They didn't have much food to eat anymore. In fact, in one village where I did field work earlier before my field work, they had to go way over across the country to buy wheat to be able to fulfill their labor obligations or their forced deliveries. Um, But a lot of people, what happened is that instead of joining the cooperative farms, everybody just left for industry. So you had like 400,000 hectares of land was lying fallow. And in 1953, people just didn't. They said forget it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to stick around here. You can, you know. So um, there's this violence by the state, but it's not very effective. I mean, and there's a lot more to that story I can tell you. And then what happens is, of course, you get 53, Stalin dies, then you get a few other things, 56, um, a rethinking of agricultural policy in 57, and then the final push in 59, which is primarily kind of instigated by the Chinese to the Soviets, you know, get your act together kind of thing. And then it was much more, the, the process was much more brutal, not because it was so physically violent, but it was, you know, after you have 56 and the Soviets invade, you know, it's not like you have any hope like you might have had in 53 or 54 that, you know, somebody was going to come and save you. I didn't realize till very recently that Austrian uh, Soviet troops didn't leave Austria till fifty-five. So if you see them leaving in fifty-five and then in fifty-six, you know. So then by sixty, you think, "Oh no, there's no way we're ever getting out of this thing." right? So the pressure was different, um, and they would do things like say, "If you don't join the cooperative farm, your child will never have a job." Well, who in the world takes, puts their children in that situation that you can't go to school? You don't do that to your children. So by that time, then 93% of of people who were working in agriculture. But what happened, what they did was, all the old people joined the cooperative farm, all the young people went off to the industry, and nobody showed up to work for about 10 years, okay. right? The old people didn't go, they'd have to bring students and soldiers and prisoners out to do the harvest, and because um, everyone was essentially saying, you know, you took it, okay, whatever, do your thing. And then they had small plots. So. So, but people don't appreciate the intensity of that second period because they don't understand you know, that kind of level of um, uh, despair, I guess, which is very different than what it would have been in the early 50s.
0: Uh, I'll bring you back to the issue of the object and value of labor, and in, in perhaps you can explain it in terms of what this work unit is, um, and, and how is it? I mean, well what is it? What is the work unit?
1: Okay, so I'll tell you as usual the story of how I found out about it, you know, the old field work story. So I go out to the uh, out to the pig farm, it's where my buddy Yoshka worked, who has just lived on the street from me, the good party secretary. Um and I go out there and um, they have a you know a, a kind of a an office where, you know, if you first drive into the cooperative farm you have to have your um, tires washed so you're not bringing any kind of dirty stuff into the farm and everything and you have to kind of check in. And so there's this woman who's, so there's this old guy Uncle Frank Fetibachi who um, I told him I was interested in work and so he started to talk about how in the old days in the, uh, people thought that when they were getting um, one tenth of the harvest they actually only got one eleventh because if you calculated this way and if you calculated that way I couldn't follow this. And then um, You know, because numbers for me have always been really weird. I don't quite understand them, so I've written about them a lot. So, um, And then I I don't remember if it was that time or another. I see this book called the work unit book, and I open it up, and every single task at the cooperative farm was listed with an arithmetic value. So you would say, um, if you did so much acreage in the course of a day, hoeing potatoes in medium soil, you'd get 1.0. If you did soft soil, you'd get 0.75. And if you got hard soil, it would be 1 to 1.25. And I go, who in the world came up with this shit? Because I always thought that labor was valued by local community um, kind of consents or whatever practices. I mean, day labor, you know, I'll let you have my plow for a day and then you can work for me for a day or something. And I go, these guys are nuts. I mean, like, I couldn't figure out who in the world had designed that thing so um i was already you know kind of and so uh and when i first went to the cooperative farm i i took notes for about a day or two on a notebook but after that i didn't ever take notes or record anything because you know that doesn't you know you're just hanging out with people right And then you go home (laughs) um and uncle frank who became my professor i mean he was the smartest guy in probably in the village and a memory, you wouldn't believe, had you know, had a nice three-year sojourn in Siberia and things like that. He, um, he came up, to, and I'd been in the village already for about a month, but I'd just been walking around. I hadn't really been meeting people in any serious way. And so he, he came up to me and he said, I went home and I, I, I said to my wife, this woman is really interesting. She speaks Hungarian. He goes, but then I told her she writes in Hungarian, and I think we should invite her over to our house. So that was the first time I was invited to someone's house, and he spent the whole time explaining the work unit to me because I could not figure out what it was. right? So so effectively what this was was the cooperative farmers, unlike people who worked at state farms, were presumably owners of their land. So they presumably controlled the cooperative farm, which of course was a fallacy. Um, and they were paid with this very strange piece rate slash share of the profits system, right? So you would, um, everybody was um, expected to produce, uh, all tasks were had these arithmetic values, and that's what the second book is about, how they were designed, I, I won't get into that right now. Um, so that you could keep track of what everybody did at the far- farm every day, you know, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. Um, and then at the end of the year, when you figured out what the you know harvest had been, and you had you know knew how much profit the cooperative had, you would figure out that a work unit was e- to equal to ten 14th or eight or fifteen 14th right? So you would multiply. So you, you know, let's say you did two hundred twenty work units over the course of the year, you'd multiply two hundred twenty times ten forint, and that's how much cash you would be given. Now, in the course of this the year, you would often be given certain amounts of wheat and grain, other grains. You know to pay you know feed your animals so you'd get partially in kind um, and so this was essentially this was a, a way of keeping track of everybody who is working right and rewarding those who worked harder right um, and being in some sense having a sense of a shared mm-hmm. thing now initially when they first introduced it nobody thought it made any sense they kept on saying well why don't we just divide up up everybody everybody which is kind of like what they did in the Soviet Union too. we have a bread day everybody gets the same amount mm. or equal things um yeah but that's the second point. Yeah, yeah 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 right yeah exactly do you think they did in the village no okay so but the point is that, that they had this kind of general ideology that that everybody would in some sense share right But they were slammed because Stalin referred to this as bourgeois egalitarianism. Because in socialism, you don't want egalitarianism. You want individuation of action, right? Despite all this stuff about collectivity, it's all about who's doing what. And you want competition so that some people produce roost more. You want people to work harder. Because the only way in which you kind of, you know, primitive accumulation, you have to get a lot of people working really hard. And so you want to reward people who are working harder. And one of the I mean so first of all that was just the basic assumption. So for example when I wrote my first book I thought that this whole process of commodification was an inadvertent process of uh, you know the institutionalization of all kinds of modern ways of working. But then I open up the documents and Rakoshi says in 1949 every single worker needs to know every single hour how much he's making. And, of course, that's because you needed to know how much, how hard you had to work to make sure you get enough money so you could feed your family. But it's also, that's the chanavite. I mean, I thought, why? why, I'm such an idiot. I didn't figure this out before. So um, you had to work harder. And the other part of the ideology, at least for the peasants, was, well, at least you won't be held back by the lazy people in your village. You will actually be rewarded for how much you work. So it's every, you know, to each to each as much as you work and as a meet, you know, you were supposed to produce. So right. you'd have individual reward. And so that was the way it was gonna be. And of course, that's not how it worked because you had family cliques and all kinds of other things. People didn't write it down. Um, but the, the idea was that this is a proportion. Now, um, I was always really interested in the how essentially kind of a share system in kind slash money system had shifted to a later form of kind of wage in the 70s and 80s. And I remember asking Feribachi, I said, um, why is it that people don't work very hard here? You know, they would always say the work morale was really bad. And he said, it's because we changed to money. was like, boing, what? You know, because, of course, the long history of a lot of people who talk about commodification says, people will work harder for money. Of course, that's a, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, because you have to learn that you need to work harder. You have to learn that you need to work for money. That's a whole, at least 100 years long process. Um, so the idea that paying people in money versus paying people in work units would have made a difference. It actually was based on some people getting, anyway. But I thought, this is fascinating.
0: How does culture and go into the value of labor how is it added to calculate you know how much a certain labor activity in the village is versus another
1: so this is a complicated question so um if you think in in anthropology value is very much thought about in terms of those issues of cultural you know morality um integrity a certain kind of understanding of the good right Whereas the value that I'm talking about in terms of scientific management is an economic value. It's an indigenous category. It's an actor's category, right? So it's, it's how they define what value is, right? Um, when I asked, um, I did a series of interviews when I was in the village and I asked people what is work, now, if you ascribe to the kind of basic understanding that things that are hegemonic, that is the most basic set of assumptions that people have, you've never spoken. You don't have to speak it. People had a very hard time of answering that question. Like, what do you mean? Work is what we do. What we, but Uncle Frank said, he goes, well, okay, I guess I would say that work is how you are, have integrity, because if you work hard, you're at integrity, and how you feed your family. So that's when you have the cultural value of the sense of integrity of being a respectable person and the productive value of it, right? So um, when you look at the, um, the ways in which people were valued in the village, for example, prior to the Second World War, you have those values. There was a whole, when I was talking about that hierarchy of, of, of workers, I talk about this in the book, if you were completely independent of any other f- form of um, control, if you were self-sufficient, you, were in, uh, you had integrity, you were a person who was in charge of yourself. If you had to work for somebody else, for example, if you had to borrow someone's plow, or if you had to um, do more day labor, you were less valued. So the degree to which you did not control yourself, or you're not fully independent, meant that you were less valuable. Which is tied, of course, to the fact that they didn't respect markets because they didn't want things to circulate. They wanted it to be stable, right? So that people who didn't live in the village and who lived out on the plantation and therefore who didn't own anything, were completely um, fluid. They might have lived there for t- three or four generations, but they were considered, mm, you know, they were considered um, not of this earth, which is an expression of the village. Right, so there you get those values. Then you get them in the work thing, which says that women's labor is less valued. Um, you know, you wouldn't pay Roma the same thing as you pay a, a white person or whatever you call it. So um, all of those things are embedded in the way in which you think about the value of particular activities. It's very, you know, but you have to pull those out, right? And you, you know, you asked me about um, one of the questions you asked me was how, you know, the, the uh, labor be beca- moved from a social value to money it's it's not that there's a transformation of social value what you have is the way I best tried to explain the shift when I was living in the village is that for older people a cow was a cow right you milked a cow right for a young person or a couple a cow was a bedroom set because it was commensurate you would think cow equals money equals bedroom set Whereas an older person says, cow is a cow is a cow. And you, and you kept, co- so I would ask older people, why are you working so hard? And they go, well, um, you can't not work, right? So you would keep 30 pigs instead of three, right? And they'd say, well, it's because the money comes in at all, all at once. Well, then you knew it wasn't about the money. It was about the fact that if you didn't, if you didn't run a, if you weren't an upstanding member of the community and worked, you were not respected. So that's where that whole, it's, yeah, I'm not answering it very well, but that's
0: all the. A lot of what you're talking about sounds similar. For for those of us who know about the Soviet agricultural collective farm system, a lot of it sounds similar. So, what was the influence of the Soviet model in the Soviet Union on you know socialist Hungary?
1: Um, not very much, insofar as. They were just, the Soviets were just as influenced, Gostev and all those other people, by scientific management. So this is an international movement, right? So that doesn't specify the bread day or the family dynamics that you have in the Soviet Union. But what it means is it's that same attention to productivity, right? How, mu- how hard you work, how do you get people to work harder? How do you continue to work in somewhat of an in-kind payment system, right? So um, to my, I mean, the, the, way whi- the, the way in which I defined it in, in, in the book is that there was the, the only kind of direct connection between Soviet, um, uh, you know, the Trudeau need or whatever, and the um, work units was that when they developed the cooperative farm wage, they took a scale of 2.5 to 0.5 which had been, you know, so that you have, you know, 0.5, which they took from the Soviets, right? But all of the content of what the value was, who decided what was more valuable, what was the 1.25 and everything, had already been kind of articulated um, in the interwar period, so that, in fact, that's why it only took them six weeks to put together this, you know, 500-page or, I don't know, 300-page work book because they had already been de- defining that. And, of course, a lot of this was based on already... Um, Recognized um, uh, manorial practices, so so you you knew that with a cow and a and a a plow, you could only do so much acreage a day. So this even goes back back to feudal obligations, right? So some of these things are somewhat, right? So it's it's similar, precisely because the Soviet Union was as modernist in this way, high modernist, as what happens in Hungary, right? So these are all these things that happen at the same time. So you have the yeah, I know it, you have these rankings, you know, of... of bureau, you know, in Hungary, they always talk about them as kind of bureaucratic scales, like you're in a um, an official, but, yeah, you know, you know, skilled worker here and then somewhat sub-skilled worker. So all of that way in which you stipulate... Um, and there was a lot of talk, you know, perhaps more kind of ideological stuff about how if you stipulated it that way, then it's a fair wage. You don't have the... Um, you know, you don't have the, uh, you know, shop floor boss screwing with you because he doesn't like you. You have wages that are set in these standardized ways. Of course, that's not how they were worked out in the, in the practice, right? So these are very similar for that reason, I would say. And, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I wanted to make clear how little... The Soviets were really influential in, in the fact that they had to collectivize. They are really influential in forcing them to collectivize both... In to 61, both um, lands and animals. A lot of people had been arguing, saying, "They keep the animals. Everybody's got a, you know, what do you call it, a stable in the backyard. Don't do that." And in fact, 80% of, of um, investments in, agri- in cooperative farms in the first 10 years was all to building stables, which they could have thrown into actually tractors and had much more fit Right. So the, the Soviet Union was inf- influential there but it wasn't influential in, the, in this work unit system, which is why one of the reasons I wanted to write it, because it was precisely about, this is based in, in Hungary's case, the strong Germanic influence, but it would have been Gostev or other you know, work science people all throughout Europe. Right? So um, that's where the similarity lies. And presumably they looked to it, but the thing is, I, I kept on looking for you know, the, the Soviet documents that they referred to when they were doing this. They don't even have a translation bureau in the agriculture ministry until 1951, right? So they're not referring to the Soviet stuff. Now maybe one or two people might have known. And in fact, Nod Imre, you know, Imre Nod, who is, you know, later, he writes to buddies of his back in the Soviet Union in 47 he says, uh, you guys have any um, political economy textbooks in European languages that perhaps we could use, <laughs> right? You know, where are we gonna get these things in English and German or, you know, French? They didn't have any of this stuff, it was completely, so um, now of course you had Soviet advisors were coming and so they had a little bit of influence but they wouldn't have had the influence at the level of detail that I'm talking about. That's why it's so important to me. So it's part of this much, so a lot of what I wanted to write this book about is as an anthropologist saying okay, what is particular about this particular place that explains that people think scientific management is all this one thing but it works itself out in different ways in different places. And um, I spent a lot of time trying to find. My biggest problem, talk about um, boring things, I couldn't find almost anything about how they had um, actually um, stru- constructed the Drulodnin. Uh, I would look, now of course they don't know Russian, but I would have thought somebody would have at least written down how did they figure these things out. And it's like nobody wrote. Now I'm sure if you, you know, I could find, if I went to like the documents in the Ministry of Agriculture, there would probably be something. But unfortunately, my Russian is like zil, you know. So, but that's what I found so fascinating that, that in fact it was it's that connection, um, which people call Taylorism. But I refuse to use the term because Taylorism is a much later thing. It's not. So, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I'll list that. And, Oh Oh. Well, I'll just say one more thing. Okay. So there was a guy who worked at the State Farm Ministry, one of these people. I interviewed a lot of people when I was doing this first, and, of course, a lot of them had been involved. And I, I interviewed the guy who had been Mr. Work Unit, he called. Now, he did spend three years at what he called advanced training, which was in Siberia. So he knew something about Soviet um, farms, right? But it wasn't it wouldn't have been very much different than mineral estates. But anyway, so he said they had this, this Russian guy who would come to the state farm meetings and stuff, and, and they'd ask him questions, and he'd start looking up, and finally at one time he says to Haggis, can't we get rid of this guy? Like, we can read the book ourselves. Why do we need this guy? And know, it's like, oh, he shouldn't have said that. But he didn't get in big trouble. you know. So a lot of these Soviets, really smart guys, they would come, they'd buy some fishing equipment, and they'd go off fishing because they didn't. Now, it is true that they were very critical of the, of the university the Russians, and I think they had every reason to be so, criticized the the agricultural coursework that it was much too general and not pragmatic enough, and I think that's true. Um, so they had a much more pragmatic approach to things, so that could have helped Hungarians, but they didn't pay attention to them very much.
0: So talk about the then, you know, this work unit and all the various calculations that go into measuring it. Talk about the people who did that. I mean, did they? How did agrarian science work? Did these people calculate this stuff away from the village? Did they go into villages and observe work? What's, what's the role of the science?
1: Okay, so people were um, presented this work unit um, book as a fait accompli, right? So in forty nine, they already have, within six weeks, they write this work unit book, right? Excuse me, the Ministry of Agriculture, the Department of, um, what would you call it? Um, well, it's um, it's this thing, Betriebswirtschaft, uh, which is called firm science in English, but it's not, it's it's what we would call industrial engineering, but it's this notion in, on the continent, at least where you talk about the firm as an internal entity, right? So you have the územ in Hungarian, Betrieb it's not, so if you call something a factory, studies in the United States that refers to oftentimes relationships among factories, whereas this is talking about the internal workings of a factory, right? So that was the unit within the Ministry of Agriculture that was designing this. So, um, this was built on about 20 years worth of work that was initiated in the 1920s by agrarian economists, or what we probably call it's I don't never know what to call these people, agrarian engineers, um, I mean, they're industrial engineers except they're working in agriculture, they're not working in industry, right? So they're doing scientific management. Um, and these are people who, in the 1930s, the only way you could compete in the international um, agrarian economy or whatever markets was to lessen the the cost of labor, right? So what you needed to do was to figure out what the value of labor was that people were investing in production. So you have these guys primarily who are influenced by all this work in Germany, the Betriebswirtschaft, the study of labor value, how do you assess labor? you know, how do you understand what's what's involved in labor? So you have the people who are doing these abstract theories about what is labor itself. You have people like psychometrics and people who, you know, this is this whole thing about sci- work science that long predates Taylorism. So it's in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s in France and in Germany, right? And they're doing all the work that branches off into occupational psychology. And, into, and then some people are doing physiological work where they would, as I said, they would put a, an oxygen mask in someone's face and study how much oxygen it took to cut massai, or how much sweat did you expend in the course of the day, and so on. Um, and so these are all people trying to figure out how to make labor this object of scientific analysis, right? So the people that I was interested in were the people who said, "What we need to do is." They had kind of a, a, a multi-pronged task. They had to figure out what the value of labor was when, in fact, most of the labor that was conducted was done in kind or in, in families, right? So if you're working at this large agro um, latifundia, these plantations—five thousand acres, ten thousand acres, fifty thousand acres—you know, they're owned by aristocrats or by the church, Catholic Church um everyone was paid a, a a yearly um contract of so much wheat every other year maybe a pair of boots we you know, kind of things so there was no direct estimation of how, the only th- the only kind of work that was paid in money was day labor and that was just a and the amount of how the people paid varied from different regions right so one one um or you know 80 you know So it wasn't a market in the sense that this was adjudicated in any wider way. Everybody else was paid in kind, right? So what they wanted to do was, assuming, of course, that in fact eventually what you would want to do is have a wage that was paid in money, because paid in kind doesn't, you know, push the productivity enough. Is they wanted to figure out how to figure out the value of labor itself. So they started to design these systems where they would say, okay, we will stipulate that um, a day of labor is 10 hours, and we'll stipulate that uh, you know, women's labor and children's labor is 80 and 60 percent of a man's labor, right? So they had those kinds of calculations. And they started to sit down and figure out how would you assess um, how would you figure out how to, you know what I always say is give a price to an event, right? How would you figure out what was going on in a way that could say this is one unit or three units, right? And, of course, part of the problem was that in Hungary, money was, a, you know, a real mess for most of the 20s and 30s. You know, there was bad inflation after 1919, you know, all this money flowing in from all the... Anyway, it's a long story. And um, there wasn't... Um, the Austrians wouldn't let Hungarians print any money because then they accused them of uh, counterfeiting. And there wasn't even an Austrian bank until 1924. There wasn't actual national currency until 1927. Then of course people are being paid in, you know, in kind. Why would you take money, you can't eat money? And then you get 45, 46 with the worst inflation in the world, right? So it was always strange to me that they actually wanted to use money as a way of paying people because you couldn't even rely on money. No one in the village would take money. That's ridiculous, what a, what a waste. So they were making these abstract units. They would say, well, we'll say that this one hour is this much value, right? And so what they started to do was they would make these standardized forms and say, labor is a certain, we'll call it a labor unit, right? And they would say, let's figure out what the value of the yearly contract was. So they'd say, well, you can va- you can say 16 quintals of wheat is, has this price. So you could figure that out. And you could say a pair of boots has this price. But how do you value the price of gathering wood in the forest? So they do these elaborate calculations, these commensuration activities, and say, okay, well, if you do if you need, you know, so much wood for a year, you know, so they would spend a lot of time trying to figure out commensurate all these what essentially were incommensurate things, so they can put them in a kind of a, a formula to be able to figure out what the value of labor was, right? So you have these people working constantly at doing this. They're also there. All these, um, so they're talking about this. I read a lot. This one newspaper that was um, read primarily by wealthy landowners and you know people who ran Lab defundia. Um, and these columns, they have columns on this scientific management. You know, this is great. You know, you could figure out if you could, you know, figure out the internal value of, you know, your, your um, dairy versus your wheat section versus your vineyards. You know, you could start to figure out where you had to invest in different things. So, all these ways of thinking about um, this is classic scientific, man- you know, rationalization, figuring out what is the most efficient and best use of resources, and then re- redesigning that workplace to look like that, right? There's a lot of stuff on this, you know, they do this with administration. So, um, just to finish the thought, so um, they design all these forms and they spend a lot of time trying to tell people, you know, you guys should not adopt this. But what did that require? A cost accountant? You might have to actually hire a steward who was actually trained at a technical school. A lot of the stewards were just these old guys who were hired and, and you know, had you know, been working there for years. Um, it, incri- it, it demanded huge investment on the part of mineral estates. They would never have spent that money in the 1930s. Who's an idiot to do that? Something like that, right? So they made all these demands on them but no one wanted to do it. And then, in fact, they would have people come and do experiments. I'd heard, you know people, I interviewed people too, and they'd say, these guys were idiots. You show up at the plantation, you know, the, and then you know the Germans would do these studies, and it turns out the long hoe is better than the short hoe. And everyone says, oh, great, thanks. I didn't know that before. So people really thought this was ridiculous, right? So these people who are very, uh, influential. They worked at the Ministry of Interior. They taught at the university. The you know the economics department was established in 1920. The agrarian guys weren't looked at very seriously, but they had all these things that started things to be taught at the technical schools. They're calling for the state to have national statistics on agricultural production. They don't have any of that shit. You know The state doesn't have any money to invest it. So there are all these things they need, what I call infrastructure, to actually make it possible for people to actually radically transform that So what it means is, you know, at one point they said, well, we need a centralized state to do this. And guess what happens in socialism? You get a centralized state.
0: So how did did this get received on the ground amongst villagers? Were they kind of given this book and, you know, with very little training or experience with trying to record, keep the records and calculate all of this? They thought it was a
1: joke. And and one of the things I wanted to talk about in this in this book was everyone says, "Well, this is resistance." No, I mean the first couple of years it's like, "Why in the world would we ever do that?" Right? "Why would you force me?" Well, I'm working with people. We're all going to share what we produce and then we'll go home. Why would I use these numbers? Um, it also, you know, they it would require someone to be writing this stuff down. Now, these people were not accountants, but they were extremely Knowledgeable in all kinds of ways of thinking about what we would think about as arithmetic projects, they could look at a uh, what do you call those things—a big you know pile of wheat or whatever, and they could say what the volume of that stack was, like that. They could look at a space and they could tell you what, but they didn't know what it meant to write down these things and figure out you know all these things. I've written about this actually in relationship to what I call false numbers. So you know it takes a while for people to learn actually how to even just write these things. So, initially, nobody wanted to write it down. They thought that was stupid. The people who did eventually write it down were usually women, who were, of course, not respected, even though, of course, women always ran the budgets in the household, so they knew what they were doing, right? But men didn't respect them this so much, right? Um, They'd have competitions for learning um, bookkeeping. I used one of the, well, that's a story. Um, And uh, and so most of, and then they would just maybe you know write them up at you know post hoc. They'd say, okay, let's say that everybody had this many, this many, and this many. Um, and of course, if you were my cousin, you get more and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so it took a while for them to. And then of course you would. I mean, the other big problem was that the state always insisted that they had first dibs on the production, right? So they would take the major point. And people say, why would we do that? So they would falsify, so they could keep a lot of the value of the wheat and of the, you know, the the animals and so on. So a lot of what they did was either just blew it off entirely and or started to fiddle with it. And then, of course, you'd get very clever people who would do all kinds of machinations So they would go and sell a few pigs at the market and then they'd make money this way or they'd make sure their cousin got, you know, so there were all these ways of doing it. And it took a long time for people to actually um, take it seriously and of course by that time after 53 54 a lot of these cooperatives are falling apart and then after 56 but by the time I got to the village that peace rate system had become naturalized yeah I'm gonna pay this person for how much he works right that's why Uncle Frank thought it was really bad that they moved from work units to money because it meant that people were paid by the hour they weren't paid by how hard they worked Men who ran tractors got a piece rate, and they made a lot of money, but the women I worked with at the cooperative farm who were hoeing potatoes or whatever, they didn't pay, they had to, you know, they had to be paid an hourly wage. They said, if you paid us by piece rate, we'd be home, we'd done at noon. I could go home and iron my clothing, mm-hmm. right? But they weren't allowed to have piece rate because they would make more money, and women shouldn't make more money, right? So the tractor drivers can work that, but women can't.
0: How much of this scientific management and the implementation of this on the agrarian economy how much of this is going on before the socialist period and continues into into it
1: well you have um, as I said a lot of the metrics for what become part of the work unit system were already based on manorial practices right so you would say um, a horse and plow will do this much acreage in the course of a day. An oxen and a plow will do this much acreage during the day. So people had that sense of the, um, you know, the kind of physical limitations or whatever of work, right? So those are the things that were adopted. But they um, and there were things called manorial workbooks you could get um, they published first ones was in 1890 and they were published all the way up until 1945 and a lot of them were precisely these kinds of calculations right so they'd say um, you know manorial workplace you do do this this and this these are the kinds of amounts of labor it takes these were designed for stewards right but there are very few kind of um, um, I mean, maybe fifty percent of the stewards were actually had training in, in from um, technical schools. Most of them were people who had worked there before, and they didn't need, you know, they didn't need this. They had these geometric fi- things to tell you how to figure out the volume of a stack of hay. Well, if you already had worked in agro, you didn't need that geometry, right? And they had, you know, they would have um, things about how to figure out the, um, you know, the value of things across, you know, how many how do I explain it, you know, kind of graphs of different levels of input and so on and what would come to certain wages. But I don't know, I have no way of knowing whether anyone used those or not because, you know, so many of the, um, I mean, there's there's no way to kind of track that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of them. I found a bunch of them, of course, in the National Library, but I don't know whether they were printed and then put them on the shelf at the Manorio Estate or whether people actually used them the people who were working there. So what that means is the people who were actually doing the work, in manorial estates, mostly the people who lived on manorial estates worked almost entirely with animals. So all of the grains work were migrant laborers. So you get some people who would come in for two months in the spring and two months in the fall, like maybe sugar beets, right? And then you would have people who come in for this, the wheat harvest, right? And then you may have sharecropping of tobacco, so there was sharecropping things, right? So um, they, you would have a sense of the physical limitations, let's say, of working a certain amount of land in a certain amount of time, but you have nothing like these work units, which is precisely why people didn't, it didn't make any sense to them when they were introducing them. Okay, so, so these new measurements are based on older systems, but they're quite different. Yeah, they're, they're, they're based somewhat, but then they do these calculations, and they'll say, okay, what we'll say is, hard soil 1.25 medium soil soft soil and then so what and and the work unit itself is supposed to be composed of a combination of skill physical difficulty the, the the importance of the work right so they had these calibrations and if if you look at stuff like this in the United States exactly the same right the problem is that in one of the reasons i think it was, this was such a kind of a cool project to do was that it's very hard to know you know like Manita Gorsk, you know it was i can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it so yeah. so he was able to get everything of all the documents of how that place was run but when he went to detroit to get the information of in the factory he couldn't get any of it because it's a private infa- private company right so in the united states it's very hard to know how these processes of scientific management are implemented because you have the same kinds of um, schema, the same books about how you know productivity, efficiency, and so on, but you don't know how they are implemented. And so, one of the values of having done this project between twenty and fifty six is you see the theoretical development of these ideas, and then you see because it's great to work in a centralized state, you have all the documents showing you how they implemented. And so, how hard it was for people to initially do it, and then eventually they start to understand it. And then, I mean, one way of of demonstrating that. So in fifty three fifty four, a lot of cooperatives fell apart, right? Even and odd said, okay, you don't have to, everyone says, okay, see you later. And so people took their land back and their animal. they tried to keep their land back and animals. Well, as I said before, there was a very clear class dif- difference between the initial people who joined cooperative farms because they'd been poor, manorial workers, and then these people came in with land. And a lot of the manorial workers thought, they didn't believe this idea that peasants had, that if you owned the land, it, you, um, there's value just inherent in owning things. They go, the only value comes from work. So they weren't willing to give people back their land. You know, we don't care that you owned it before 45. We worked just as hard as you did. We just didn't own it, you know. You know they'd say, we put our blood in the, <laughs> We did too, we just, didn't, we just got screwed. So <clears throat> what happens is there are these huge judicial, there are these legal battles over whether people can get land or not, right, whether they can do their flint. And that's when people start to use the numbers. Because they'd say, okay, I worked, because you had to work 220, they say, but no, I worked 160 and that's enough for a woman, so I should get this stuff back. And then they come, so, so that's 53, 54, so that's after several years of people having been introduced to it, and then it becomes valuable. And it's also about the time when the, the, the national, um, whatever you call it, accounting agency starts to call people on their accounting things. So it becomes more and more important. You can't just submit, you know, some messy little thing. They're starting to make it more serious. So you start to get an expectation of it becoming more demanding. Of course, things fall apart at 56, and then they bring it back later. So
0: given given your work and in, in looking at how this stuff is constructed within this, you know, state socialist economy Without, you know, capitalist markets, without labor markets and things like this, all of this has to be constructed. How do you understand the, and the way labor is commodified? How do you understand socialist hungry socialism?
1: Yeah, this is these are the questions that started to really throw me. I. Um, I mean, I think that uh, As you can tell, I think very much in kind of longer historical processes, right? So much of what the first book was about was all about how what had been understood as an activity, that is labor, people talked about it as an, you know, it was always a verb, had become increasingly defined as an object, which if you look at Lukacs and the whole, I mean, it's the whole history of political economy developed because, you know, as an anthropologist, I would say that you know, European political economy is just another set of cultural assumptions, right? So you watch the rise of this epistemology, which in fact reflects the process by which the people are working and it transforms into a commodity, into an object. So that by the time I'm in the village, people talk about their labor as an object that they possess, right? Uh, That's the object of labor. So for me, the... um, the way to think about socialism is to think about it as a much more complexly, uh, historically, historical periodization, right? That in fact, in the early, like the late 40s, early 50s, you're talking about a very consistently modernist, high modernist project where you're kind of controlling and you know, designing all these numbers and the scientific management. But then it shifts and the, dynam- the dynamics of the economy changes. Right Giles Juja has written a lot about the shifts when you get to move to kind of chemical production away from the so for me, what's important about socialism is to understand it as a historical process like anything else, and so you have to look at how it shifts and changes over time right so um commodification then is part of this whole whole process of the way in which um wage labor arises, and in this case uh this might not be true for example socialist states in Africa or, or East Asia for example, but in this case this was a means by which labor was eventually commodified mm-hmm. by which I mean in a very simple sense the people equated their time um, with a certain monetary value right so their their, their activities having a temporal um, Differentiation, you know, so that you could say a unit one hour would be, you know, that much activity. You wouldn't say from sunrise to sunset, which is what they said during the interwar period. You know that you would differentiate pieces of, you know, time, right? And then that would have a monetary value.
0: So, would you would in from taking from what you're saying, it it sounds like in this context, in the context of Hungary, it is modernization and state building to a large extent. It socialism is in the means through which this particular society modernizes is that fair to say
1: it would be fair to say if you didn't assume that it had all those the claptrap shit of all the development theories about modernization right. if what it means is you have well you know i mean all it's stupid shit that makes it doesn't have any historical base i could I don't let me go um you know it's like did anyone read any history when they were writing these things so um but here I mean, in a, terms of like a, rationalization. Yeah. yeah. So I, one of the things I say in the second book is that the, the Stalinist state is a modernizing state, and for a lot of people, that just drives them up the proverbial wall, because they remember the state as being extremely violent. It was, but if you sat and looked at what we, people were doing in the offices, they were writing, you know, policies. They were kind of debating. They would say back to the cooperative farm, don't you think maybe you could do this way, this way? They they coexisted, so it's not as if there wasn't a certain amount of fear and anxiety, but the thing, so much of what the, the state had to do to build a planned economy was in fact to build all these infrastructures to make it possible that you could figure out wages, for example. So in that sense, it's a modernizing state, and I think that, you know, it would be very much like what you could look at in the Department of Agriculture in the 1950s United States where they also were trying to go after small farms and they're crashing them down and all kinds of stuff like that, right? So they're very pal- parallel processes. Um, and then, um, and then it's, a, it's a process whereby you have this whole ra- radical transformation that is not dependent on markets. Because which is a fetishization of Anglo-American economists. I mean, no one in Europe thinks markets having this kind of value. This is an extremely problematic historical weirdness of American economics that everything is markets and it's not. It's just it's just it's you know <laughs> it's problematic, right? It's right. It, and actually it's it's tied back to you know I I, I mentioned in passing a Rick Baranaki's book on on the fabrication of labor and he makes this marvelous argument about how um, Marx's notion of labor power was an indigenous German notion, right? That in fact the way in which people thought about labor was in the sense of energy and activity, right? And it ties it into what becomes thermodynamics and all kinds of other things. And if you look at Marx, he says it's the activity. He said, you know, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be rewarded for the value of your actions. I mean, he doesn't. But so Rick compared these British and German wool factories, and in Germany, people were paid according to how many times people moved the wolf back and forth. In England, you were paid according to how much yardage you produced. It's a very different way of thinking about it. And as presumably, I mean, he has a long argument about how in Germany, what you have is a rapid shift from feudal relationships to this new industrial form. So it has a lot to do with servile relationships transforming into that, right? Whereas in England, you had a much longer history of market relationships, right? So you had small craftsmen. People were paid according to their product. So the idea that productivity is output and not action, these are two different theories entirely. In fact, I've just written a paper about this, actually, you know that in fact the, the time and motion studies that they conducted in Hungary would define labor in an entirely different way. That these are two radically different concepts of labor. They're not talking about the same kind of thing. So, but we're stuck in this Anglo-American idiot place where they say that, you know, everything is a market, that everything has to be defined in terms of how much you produce as objects, and it's not ever paid attention to in in the sense of what people are actually doing. And I wrote about this in relationship to calorie money, which they used during the inflation period in 1946, where people were paid. Either with food or with the monetary equivalent of a certain amount of calories that they had to have, because they had to keep production going, because they they needed to pay off their war reparations. So this idea of energy is, you know, pretty much exists this very day, right? And it's it's invisible because people don't actually do the historical cultural work to understand the conceptual context, which takes me to my much broader. Argument which I've been trying to make for a long time, and that is that formalizing practices, that is, the way in which people do mathematical formulae, the way in which you standardize things through numbers, are necessarily indexical. Any that, you know, the the the, the work science stuff that they did, the way in which they calculated those work units in Hungary, was very much in relationship to the kind of workers they had. So if you looked at the work science volumes in the 1920s, they would say, well, this is how you should, you know, you should have a certain standardized wage, but remember, Romanians work like this, and Germans work like this, and Hungarians work like this, so it was all calibrated according to the ethnic identity of, and you see the same thing in the United States, so this is great, you know, these scientific managements who say, don't think you can do work the same work with people in the South as you can in the North, they're just different people, you know, so um, So I'm trying to make this argument, which has become very obvious with, if you look at the studies of algorithmic culture and the way in which, um, you know, all the, the ways in which algorithms are constructed are based very much specifically on the assumptions that go into the model that's built in the first place. So that's part of the, that's kind of a big theoretical thing. Well,
0: That was Martha Lampland, a professor of sociology and science studies at the University of California, San Diego. She's the author of two books. The Object of Labor, Commodification in Socialist Hungary, and The Value of Labor, The Science of Commodification in Hungary, 1920-1956, to 1956, both published by the University of Chicago Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank all my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud or You can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.